is your host, Aram Mokumuf, and you're listening to another episode of the Product Innovation Show. Every week, our guests that we have on our show share their stories and wisdom on how to ship a great product. Really fortunate today, we have Abascar Deca, who is the global head of product management and AI at uh, EdCast. Uh, in the past, uh, he led product management, data science, and engineering teams in companies like Oracle and Informatica. Abascar, amazing to have you on our show. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. Aram, thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. Awesome. So the first question I have for you is, I'm always curious to ask uh, what AI product, uh, what, what does it mean to be an AI product leader? That's a great question, Aram. Um, obviously, you know, it has the elements of, you know, classic product management, right? But the AI definitely brings a new dimension to it. Um, and, you know, if you think about, and I'll talk about what product management and maybe a little bit about then what product leader part of it is. Uh, so when you think about product management, you know, you have your classic, uh, you know, data code part that you have to think about, you know, your technical aspects as needed. But you live in a more deterministic world if you think about you know, non-AI. Um, and here it could be a bit more ambiguous because you're dealing with a lot of experiments. Uh, so it won't be you know, A plus B equals C, but depending on the data you're feeding in, depending on the problem space you're in, you're kind of experimenting and learning from it, whether it's a recommendation engine that you're building or you know, sales forecasting. So it definitely needs a slightly different mindset um, the other aspect of, of being an AI product manager is that it's an exciting new field, so not, a lot of new things are happening. You know, MLOps, where how you do uh, actually models that get deployed in different customer instances, that's an evolving field. So you have to be constantly um, you know, on your toes to learn and how you can apply to it. Um, and then you're not only really dealing with developers anymore, you also have data scientists that you know, you have to work with. So you're writing specs and you're working closely with not only, uh, you know, your, your, from a business perspective, but you're working with a data scientist to dealing with data. So data fluency is a uh, very important skill. So altogether, I think you, you have this additional dimension to, uh, to, to being a product uh, manager. And then if you're a product leader where you're now managing a set of product managers, um, you know, I always, as I build team, I always, uh, as an ex-engineer, I have a little bias towards people with technical skills, even in product management, but I always surrounded myself with a team which had folks with great technical knowledge, but also, you know, more the humanities side of thing, you know, behavioral aspects and so forth. You know, some calls it, you know, poets and quants, right? So you have people with quantitative skills as the, the other side. I think it becomes even more important when you're building an AI product because sometimes if you're too much on one side of the things, you know, you're being way too much data driven, but not maybe you know bringing in some of the human elements of it. You you could be building something which is you know not quite right. Um, so altogether, I think it's an exciting thing that AI, as as is a cliche that AI is a new electricity. It's been seeping into you know all the major enterprise software, you know, consumer kind of took the lead with Amazon, Google, and in investing a lot in, um, in the AI side. But now as you're seeing enterprise software being built, um, you know, this is my second startup where our core product is all uh, AI driven. Uh, it, you know, AI is the core of what, what we do. And it's fascinating to see the advancements that has happened and, and how product management has caught up with uh, that as well. 
Very interesting. Um, and uh, my next question I have is, as a product leader working in AI, mm-hmm. um, and I'm probably going to have a few questions around this because it's an interesting topic for us that we've been looking at is around biases uh, mm-hmm. in decision making. So yep. how, let's talk maybe just go back to the AI side. Um, how do you how do you remove or how do you like come across biases in AI if there are any? So that, that's a very uh, uh, good question, uh, Aram. So, you know, le- let me maybe first separate out, you know, bias and decision making that in a classic product management sense first, then before we get into on the AI side of bias, right? Mm-hmm. So you have your classic, um, you know, biases like, you know, confirmation bias is a common uh, cognitive bias. Then you have big customers, whether I call it uh, 800 pound gorilla or sometimes, you know, customers which can be very vocal about things. So you might, your road might get biased towards that. Then you have things like recency bias, maybe most recently what you've heard. Um, the other one most common being, you know, sunk cost, right? That you invested in something and then even though it's not really sticking, you're still continue because you made an investment. Uh, and then the other one is you're trying to follow others, like the whether I call it hard mentality in Wall Street or something similar. So I think all of those biases still apply when you're building an AI-based product. Now the additional dimension that comes to it, to which you rightly pointed out, is how do I, when I'm building um, in a model, how do I not let bias seep in? into my model itself. And uh, one of our key customers, and I'm not going to name name, but one of the major pharmaceutical uh, companies uh, in the world, um, as we worked with that, we found that they were so thoughtful about how, you know, AI ethics has been taught. I mean, in fact, as we were building the product out and then, you know, refining it, that was one of the papers I, I mean, referred to. And uh, one of the key elements of that was, you know, right from the level of the data representation. And, you know, one, one good example is whatever data sample or representation you're bringing in, you want to make sure that there is no bias towards whether it's certain race or certain you know, sexual orientation and, and what have you, right? So being very thoughtful about that aspect, I think, is very important. Uh, the second part of it is, you know, privacy and data privacy and um, your uh, bias can be kind of uh, very interrelated on some two sides of the same point. So some of those privacy related things that you come in, you know, making sure the data is totally anonymized, uh, you know, the, the way you do clinical trials and then, you know, double blind and so forth, same aspect you be, uh, bring in. Um, so I think those, uh, aspects as you take a step back and think through with the proper planning of your data and and then as you're inspecting your model uh, those are ways that you now once the model is in place uh, there is a way for you to go back and inspect it uh, from your output perspective and there also you can just form some biases Um, so those are things and then outside of that obviously if you're thinking about machine learning lingo there's something called bias and variance which is you know, <laughs> very different from what we're talking about. But yeah, in, in general, I think it's a very important topic. And, um, you know, whether it's the, uh, 
the Googles of the world, that there is an army of folks who are specifically looking at AI ethics, uh, which applies in a big way to, to the enterprise world. No, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, you touched upon something there that I wanted to ask a question around, which was um, working with l larger organizations as clients, mm -hmm. you get biased in terms of like, well, I want this in the, the feature roadmap. Um, I want you to build this for me and then I'll use it or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of pressure to product leaders like yourself or to the product managers to have to consider these type of things into your roadmap. Um, um, how do you counter? How do you counteract that, or how do you approach that kind of uh, situation when it comes to be so that you don't get distracted um, from deviating in the wrong direction? Ultimately, yeah. No, I think it's a very uh, good uh, question again. Um, well, first of all, let me start up with you know the benefits side first, right? So when you're working with um, some of these big influential customers. The, on the benefit side, I think you know many of them or most of them are kind of um, leaders in in that field. I mean, they really push the envelope of your product is because in some case they might be very unique or they might be trendsetters in a way. Um, so it the things that you would try to come up with within you know your four walls of thinking as a product management team. They will take you to uh, you know they will have a lot of out, out of the box thinking outside of what you're doing. So it, from benefits side, I think it's great when you're working with. I mean, there are so many examples I can draw upon from my career where uh, we were just wowed by how you know big influencer customers would come in. But have you thought about this? You know how you know, and it's not simple things like pushing the envelope of your performance of your product but really taking you to an, in, the, in a certain direction within the feature set itself. Um, that being said then, you do have that challenge of, you know, with, with very demanding customers, they could overwhelm your roadmap the, the way you're saying it. So, so one, um, I, I guess the few approaches that I, I've seen working, one is being very transparent about the fact that, especially in an enterprise SaaS world, you're building a product which uh, you need to be able to, you know, configure and sell it for, you know, a lot of customers, right? Um, so being transparent about the fact that although those are great features that you're asking for, some of them might be very unique and you might not be able to, you know, fit that in, right? Um, so that's on that setting the expectation side. Uh, the other side on the product engineering side is kind of build product with a lot of configurability into it. I mean, it's, it's a SaaS product, but it's amazing how much, you know, different, uh, you know, things you can do. I mean, we use something called Launch Darkly, which leaves, you know, you can turn on, turn off certain feature sets, or you can tweak it to the nth level in many ways. So I think even as an enterprise SaaS product, you want to do that. The third aspect that comes in is that roadmap acceleration. So it could very well be that the, that big influence on customer wants something quickly. You don't have the bandwidth from an engineering standpoint to do it. Now, different places I've been, we've called it uh, in a, with different names. One that I normally use it called product solutions, where you might be doing something which is aligned to your product roadmap, but it's something unique to maybe one or two customers. Mm -hmm. And then you can work with them to build that you know, additional product solution uh, in a, as a paid engagement. 
Um, so, you know, and then as long as it's core to your product, and either it's roadmap acceleration or something slightly adjacent to it. Uh, and most of the times when you're transparent, you're working with uh, the customer, they'll be open to that. Um, I guess the last aspect that I've seen really working is having a good customer advisory board or a user group. Because a lot of times you will see that um, not only would they influence other customers, but some unique things they might be asking for as you're discussing in a peer group or in others, they might say, oh, you know what, that uh, thing that I was looking for, actually the other one is more important than what I thought that one was. So sometimes they will come around and say, yeah, no, I, I agree with what you're putting in your roadmap after that customer advisory discussion. So again, it's a combination, but all throughout, I think transparency is key. Um, and um, you know, having that openness about any kind of paid engagement that you could have with, uh, with product solution is another one I've seen definitely seen working. And on uh, this product advisory, that's an internal product advisory team, right? That exists within your company? Um, so there are typically two kinds. So you have the, uh, the customer advisory board, which would be a, a select few customers would be part of that. Then you'll meet on a uh, you know certain cadence, six months or one year. And then you typically have a user group, which could be done outside, more external, but you'll be invited to in a serial roadmap and so forth. So it's easily a combination of those two. Okay. Yeah, because I remember last time we, we talked about this, you mentioned something around um, you could form like a, a, a team internally in your own organization that could review things that could be from different departments or different um, elements uh, within mm -hmm. your organization that could review um, any of these type of kind of uh, new requests, you know, in order to stay objective yep. uh, to see how it could help. Um, what would... What would, what would that ideal kind of like team look like in terms of what departments or what kind of groups would you want present in that? Yeah, so I think the one that you're referring to is some kind of a product council, uh, which yeah. interestingly product I just came off from my <laughs> biweekly product council. So um, the typical representatives of a product council is you have your customer facing folks like your head of customer success, um, you your marketing, uh, your head of sales, or you know, a couple of delegates around it. Um, your engineering, uh, because and and you know, in our case, we have engineering and the head of quality as well, the head of uh, QA, uh, and then any other, um, you know, and somebody with a strategic role. So typically, uh, what I've seen is then uh, as a collective group, then you come up with uh, some of this. Uh, you know, both strategic and all personal aspects of product management that you get discussed there. If some decisions you're not able to make as a collective and, you know, you need the veto power of the CEO, then I've seen uh, and I've worked with uh, where the CEO, even though part of our council, most likely delegate the work to, to the rest of the folks, but would use uh, his or her veto, you know, every once a quarter, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> Right, okay. uh, but that's uh, I've seen it working really well, and we go through even the notion of go no go for a particular release. Well, mm -hmm. you bring into the product council and say you need to meet a minimum threshold of, you know, this many 
uh, P1, P2 bugs being out of the system and uh, you know all the documentation in ready, all the collaterals that's needed for to be customer rollout. And, and then only like a subtle launch, you know, electrical go, mechanical go, you will have everybody come together and say, yep, we are ready for it. So that's another operational aspect. Uh, I've seen it working really well uh, with the product council. Okay, no, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, my next uh, questions that I have are going to be tied to more, I would say, the product management planning side of things. So mm -hmm. um, y you mentioned something interesting when we last spoke, which was the, the importance of architectural epics and stories mm -hmm. being part of the planning process. Yeah. Um, and I know like a lot of people take that for granted and like, yeah, you know, we're, you know, we're mindful of those, but Unfortunately, these things are still missed. And I wanted to get from your perspective, why is it so important that uh, these things are properly given the time of day um, in the planning process uh, before embarking on any kind of next steps? No, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, I love Agile. I mean, I think uh, probably, um, you know, in Oracle, when I was there, we were still in, in the classic waterfall or maybe spiral model. But past 12 years of my product leadership has been all uh, various form of Agile. So great you know, delivery model. But one thing you have to be careful with Agile is that because you're so narrow focused in you know, sprint-based delivery um, and you're getting constant validation, that un unless you're careful, uh, like you rightly pointed out, you might be too much going towards the business epics, but not investing enough of architectural epics. Mm. And especially in a startup, it becomes even more important because you know you have this whole you know product market fit. Then you're going with in a lot of great customer um, you know penetration, and hopefully everybody is looking for a hockey stick effect and you know scaling up. And if you're not being careful, then you could be building a lot of features on the you know, with the, based on the business epics, but architecturally, you're not set up for success, and suddenly you're you know surprised, right? You're, you know, it's the classic the performance not being able to up to mark, or even different pieces of integrated pieces are falling apart. So I think every uh, you know there, there are different techniques in um, in a uh, in in an agile model that you can do. You know, you can do various type of spikes where you're trying out a few things and then. Uh, making sure that as part of quality also you're um, you know from QA process you're testing a lot of things that can test the tires of, of your architecture but uh, and that's um, as a product team but your engineering would always come and t tell you about that and say hey I, I need some architectural epics I think product is under a lot of pressure from business or customers to keep pushing additional features and this is where you need to take a pause and and then you know listen to your architects, your uh, your engineering partners to make sure that you know those are properly factored in. So every quarter that's our you know we use a safe the model you know the scaled agile process and every quarter we as a product team we do sit back and think through that. It's like you know you have a classic sprint planning but every quarter are we looking at enough architectural epics along with the business epics. Okay, awesome. Um, talking about metrics and you know how you keep things on track or what you look for, um, want to talk about that with you next. Um, mm -hmm. As a product leader, um, 
product metrics are always things that you need to consider and look, you know, and review against. Um, you know, you've previously mentioned things like uh, deliverability, delivery predictability as as a metric, uh, yep. you know, through through burn down charts and things like that. Mm-hmm. Why? How do you do that, and how? Why is that important? Uh, you know, as a metric for you. Yeah. No, I think that delivery predictability. Um, it, it, has a really um, big impact on, you know, I don't know whether you call it upstream or downstream, but all the way to the customer. Because when you're sharing the roadmap with your customer, yeah, you put your classic safe harbor saying, you know, some of this might not exactly happen. But if if you have done, uh, you know, roadmap presentation that might be the yearly one, and then next year you go back and kind of show that 50% of them didn't get done, um, it it, you don't look good in front of a customer, whether it's the yearly or quarterly and so forth. Um, so even though you try to put high-level blocks, um, you know that, you know, that that's from that perspective. Secondly, it could have a potential churn risk, right? That if you're if you're a lot of times some customers are you know competition is always putting putting pressure, and then you're if you're not able to deliver on the, on the promise. So delivery predictability is one thing that both me and my engineering partner are very uh, careful about. And it goes down to doing good sizing of your uh, tickets, but also, like you said, you know, having the good burn down charts and uh, understanding about it. So that's the, the, that's the main reason. Now, it, it's easier said than done. I mean, it, it takes you quite a bit of iterations to get through. And then, um, you know, if you're a, engineer for example it even simple things like you would wait till the last minute to say hey i'm done uh, as opposed to saying once i'm done i'm moving to so some of those numbers could be a bit skewed towards the end of the sprint so it does take a little bit of extra effort to to understand how long it really took for you to deliver and then what can you learn from it so sprint retrospective is super important because of that and as you're learning from its sprint but yeah, I mean, al- among the top 10 metrics that I've been tracking uh, as a product leader, delivery predictability is, is something I, I always look at as a very important one. What are some What are some other ones in your top 10? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have your classic adoption metrics, right? The NPS, uh, the outside of NPS, the, the classic adoption metrics uh, that, uh, you know, is very important because... Um, you know, it goes back to the sunk cost uh, example I was giving as a bias, that one of the ways you look at that sunk cost aspect is that what's your adoption looks like, and uh, that that you should be able to measure in a very quantitative way. And I mean, that nowadays, you know, there were days where you could only do it with, uh, you know, Google Analytics uh, with some tricks around it, but now there are so many good product analytics tool, uh, and they're right at the uh, feature level, you can go and uh, take a look at uh, you know what kind of adoption you're getting. So uh, normally, the way I categorize is you have your classic, um, you know, uh, more from a business standpoint. You know, if you're uh, the cloud metrics, sort of thing, and some percentage of it, I mean, I mean, some section of it, whether it's the, you know your um, uh, monthly recurring revenue and, and and so forth aspects of it. So you have that part. Then you have the, your adoption metrics. Um, and, and then part of it could be depending on what kind of product you, you might even look at the balance of some vanity metrics as well, uh, right? And then you come into more on the delivery side of operation side of it where product um, predictability 
uh, one that we talked about comes into play. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, maybe one last question before I jump into that fireside yeah. hot seat question set I have, but um, you worked in a lot of products over the years, different companies. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of product or feature that you could tell us about that was like uh, difficult to kind of navigate through either from the initial get-go or when it was already you know delivered you, you learned that it was like the wrong solution for it um, you know tell us like how it happened and how would you have approached it differently so I think um, I think probably there are multiple instances um, one that really come to mind uh, from like a couple of startups ago um, one was where you know when we were building uh, it was a new marketing product we were building so from it's we were very uh, gung-ho about it. it it was a CRM product suite and we were getting great market uh, penetration on it and then we felt that and we learned from the market that you know a, a marketing product that does along with uh, the rest of the CRM would be a great fit uh, you know you will do also campaign management that will fit into you know actually customers using it so everything looked super good um, now there are two aspects of it one is you do the digital marketing aspect where you you know we were even uh, you know those are the early days of Alexa Google Home and we we're saying wow we can even do that kind of aspect huh? so it's a new thing but we found that um, there's the customer or the target uh, market segment also used uh, print marketing and where we went wrong, and I'll, I'll take the blame as, as the product leader, is that I totally underestimated the aspect of print marketing. I thought, well, you know, you can do the same thing. You, you just use, you know, engage a printing house, and then you can do the same thing. But turned out that that was, first of all, the type of business we were in, it had a very different way of, you know, first of all, they, they got a lot of, existing players in that and they were pretty entrenched in it there was a process that people within the customer were used to and even a segment of customers of uh, that business they were more comfortable with using print materials than digital right um, so long story short very quickly we learned that not only it's business we shouldn't be getting into but also we were alienating some partners because they had big you know print side of the business. So um, I, I, I think the lesson learned there again was that um, sometimes you might get a bit tech focused by thinking, oh, I can build this part. But you have to really go in and see how it's used by our customer. And the, the other aspects, like I said, the partner ecosystem there, about the people who are using it, the big percentage. Of it. So that, that was one example. The other example, since I talked about uh, sunk cost, I've done, especially early in my career, where you, without thinking fully thoughtfully through it, you are mimicking uh, what a competitor might be doing in your product, and you're adding uh, additional feature groups, and that again leads to that whole sunk cost thing. Yeah, you know, it's not really aligns with you. You're better off partnering. I mean, I think. You know, a lot of times you see you have your core product, and rather than trying into adjacencies, you're better off with partner. You're actually expanding the pie, and then you know, yes, at some point you might get into it. So 
those are some of the mistakes that uh, I think you know we all make, but we learn from it. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. All right. Um, fireside format. A uh, couple questions. One, you know, one minute responses. Let's let's try our best to get through some of these so that um, uh, we could get some wisdom out there quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so the first the first question I have is interesting. One is what are as what aspects of product development mm -hmm. money can't fix. What aspects of program money can't fix? Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great one. I guess the way I would look at it is, um, you know, if you have the wrong product strategy, you know, it, it's about building the right product versus building product right. If you think about it that way. Now, if you're not, if you don't have the right product strategy and then you know the right product that you're thinking about, then it doesn't matter. You know, it's not only the money. It put the best engineers on it, then what will come out is not something that you'll be able to, you know, position in the market. So, um, so true. Yeah, yeah. Products you can't pay. You can't use money to fix your product strategy. That's so true. Thank you. Um, yeah. Next question I have would um, be around asking your users what to build next. When would mm. you not do that? Yeah, so that one is, I think, you know, that the classic uh, Henry Ford saying, right, that if I had asked my users, they would say uh, they need a um, faster horse. Faster horse <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, and then Steve Jobs also talk, talked about the fact that, you know, sometimes the, the users don't know what they want. So I think when you're uh, trying something disruptive, when you're really out there with, with some innovation, um, that's where, I mean, I think you need to kind of take the lead on, and, and then, yeah, you'll find those early adopters or mavens. Uh, but if you go out and try to do with focus group, then most likely you're going to come back with, uh, you know, some answers which is not what you're looking for. So I think, yeah, I, for an established product, when you, you, you have it out there and then you, you're learning from your users, is a bit different than when you're coming up with something very disruptive and innovative. Okay. Um, is there any point um, in the product development that throwing money at the problem would 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 solve it? Yes, I think that's the reverse of what we talked earlier. When you ha you when you have the right product, you have the right product strategy, and now you are you have the product market fit. You know, uh, right? So now at that point, you're thinking about either scaling up from a, maybe from the product feature perspective, or maybe you're doing geographical expansion. You know, you have had great success here in the US, now you're getting into the European market or the Asian market. There, and, a, and it's a classic way of, uh, in a, since we are in the startup world, when you go from Series A, Series B, Series C, you know, that's where you need the money because, yeah. you know, now you've proven yourself and, you know, you can build up both on the product side as well as on, on the sales side. Okay, that's, that's very true. Happens all the time with uh, yeah. uh, scaling companies. Um, yeah. All right, a few more, a few more, and then we'll mm -hmm. wrap it up. Um, this one's an interesting one, but what do you believe in that other people think is insane? Oh, that's a great one. I think as a, so I 
spent uh, half of my career in you know big companies. I you know like Oracle Informatica. I learned a lot. Uh, but past uh, say eight nine years, I've been in startup. I think, and I'm not being a founder. I'm usually the you know the the founding head of product. Uh, I would say that's a classic story of uh, in a founder or in a founding members of a startup because you must be crazy to think that this will work. You're going against some either some existing you know big behemoths or you're coming up with something new idea. So I'll give an example from one of the startups that. Um, and again, I was on the founder, but um, we were building uh, an, a, a CRM product for the automotive industry. Now, there are already a lot of established CRM products, and Salesforce included. Another question is: Is there a market for, um, you know, just focusing on automotive, whether it's the car dealerships or you know, car makers of the world? Um, why not you take? And Oracle and Salesforce and you know customers for it. Uh, turned out that actually it was a fairly complex thing, you know, especially when it, you know where we played, which was the um, service department. A typical car, I'm, I'm not a car guy, but typical car tip has about 28,000 parts, and then the maintenance menu is just insane. Mm -hmm. So when you look at something like that and say, yes, there'll be a market, there'll be other aspects, the horizontal aspects of it, which is common to all the CRMs. But the vertical aspect, there's a market for us. For you to believe in it, then you know, build a company around it. It could look like insanity, but I think that that's what for most of the startups, or you know, as I said, the, the founding members of the startup look like. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes you got to be a bit crazy to to get into building a company uh, from day one. So, yeah, it's a very true example of uh, that type of niche. Um, all right, last question you is um, all your knowledge you have now what would be your advice to a 30 year old you oh would I want to be 30 old absolutely <laughs> <laughs> um, well I think uh, I've been very fortunate to to have tried different things uh, I mean I was part of my career I was an engineering engineering management then I've done you know even though I'm a product leader, I've done a little bit of product marketing in between as well. So one thing I'll go back and tell my 30-year-old, uh, even though I've been adventurous in this aspects, is that uh, take even more risk. It, it's okay to fail. I think your, your failure tolerance, you know, as you go higher up, but I think it reduces a little bit, uh, even the you know, level of responsibility you have. But in my, uh, you know, when I'm 30. Uh, one one thing I look back and see is that one I could have been uh, spend a little bit of time in sales as well. That's one uh, area where you have an actual quota, and I have a lot of respect uh, for salespeople because of that. That you're driven by a quarterly quota, and then you know how you have to be both hunt, in some cases hunter or a farmer. Uh, so if I could, that that's probably one thing I'll do: spend a year or two in sales because. A big part of product leadership is that you know salesmanship. I mean, it only salesmanship won't get you to where you want to be, but it's an inter in, uh, important aspect of it. I mean, one one of uh, my th thing to my team is that you have to be the best advocate for your product when you're out there, you know, with, with your customers and analysts. But also, you have to be the worst critic when you're building the product. You know, and you're with with your engineering and trying to fix so forth. So that earlier part, I think I would, probably would have learned more if I had spent a bit of time in sales myself. So 
that's probably what I'll do. I love that. I think everybody should spend a little bit of time in sales. It <laughs> helps you with everything that you do. Um, yeah. Selling people to convince people around your your idea, your your um, your strategy. So very true. I, I love that. Um, yeah. So we'll wrap up there. Uh, thank you so much, Baskar, for coming on our show and sharing that wealth of knowledge of yours over these you know, uh, years of experience you have. Um, and always thank you to our listeners for tuning in, supporting the show, and following us. So um, th thank you again, Baskar. It was, uh, it was great having you today.